Episode 2. After the show, don't forget to visit tell.fish slash gear to get our recommendations on gear that will take your angling adventures to the next level and help make you the next Telltale Fisherman. Welcome to the Telltale Fisherman Podcast, where avid anglers share the story of their best fishing day ever to inspire yours. Now it's time for another epic adventure. So here's your host, John Woodson. All right, welcome to the show. Today, I'm very honored to have our second guest ever, who happens to be my uh, compadre, partner in crime and fishing who I go out with uh, most all the time when I hit the water and his name is Greg Snyder. Greg, welcome. Thanks, John. Glad to be here and uh, participate in this. All right, so let's learn a little bit about you. I know a lot, but I think I'm going to learn even more today. Tell us a little bit about what you do for your day job, where you live, and uh, let, then we'll get into some of your uh, fishing exploits. Yeah, I, by day, uh, I manage a sales team for uh, Siemens. We do power generation equipment uh, for North America. So I'm uh, gallivanting around uh, North America and uh, managing an awesome team of people uh, throughout the country. And you're based here out of Orlando? Yep, I live here in Orlando, and I'm here at least uh, three nights a week. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about what got you started in fishing. How did you get hooked? I think I actually, it may sound weird, but I think I was born that way. <laughs> I, uh, I have pictures of, now my mom and dad like, loved the water. I, I grew up uh, mostly in southern New Jersey, Philadelphia area, and we would go up to Cape Cod for vacation. So uh, I always uh, had a fishing pole in my hand, uh, but I, the earliest I remember fishing is riding my bike uh, in southern New Jersey down to a local pond and just catching uh, brim, sunfish, and little bass and uh, I would do that whenever I could get away. So I'd jump on my ba- on my bike with my rod and dig some worms and go down there and catch fish. And I think that was about second grade. And then from then on, pretty much every year, I would uh, I'd fish freshwater close to where my houses were. And on vacations, uh, we would go to saltwater and I would fish uh, pretty much all day long. So growing up, did you ever live near the coast or saltwater where you had a chance to do that kind of stuff more or just on vacation? Uh, Morristown, New Jersey, we were a little less than an hour away from uh, Long Beach Island, which had pretty good surf fishing and a little bit of bay fishing. But my dad and uh, some of his buddies used to love surf fishing, and I think I was about the only kid that had the patience to, to surf fish. And at a right early age, I uh, I could keep up with the big guys with uh, with my skill set, or actually I was just a lucky guy, I guess. So how about through uh, college and the years following? What type of fishing did you do then and what opportunities did you get to go fishing college not a lot um i went to a pretty hard school and double majored so during the school year i did not fish i think at all in the summers i did a little bit but i was working you know for college money so i I would say in the in the late 70s when i was in college is probably the time i fished least in my life but then uh, my first job i moved down to baton rouge louisiana where I ultimately met my, my new my wife then, or now as well. And um, her mom and dad just so happened to live on a saltwater bayou. And that was like the best place. Now, I live in a really cool place here to fish in, in Florida, but uh, not, it does not compare to Louisiana. 
And what'd you do and fish for there in Louisiana? Uh, the house was literally right on a bayou and had a couple lights over the bayou. And so at night, the uh, redfish and trout would uh, crush the little minnows. They called cockahoe minnows and shrimp that would be drifting by in the tide. It was a saltwater bayou. So at night, we would fish uh, for trout and redfish. Uh, and they actually had a dog that somehow sensed when the fish were biting. So he'd run to the front door, look up uh, above the door, and you think you needed to go out and pee or something, and it turns out you open the door, and underneath the light, the fish were popping. So the rule was if he told you the fish were popping, he got to eat the first one. <laughs> I wish I had a dog like that. Mine are pretty worthless. So tell us about what type of fishing you do these days. Pretty much here, I, I live on a, on a golf course, so I have a little pond behind my house that I go out maybe once a month or so, whether they're a fly rod or light spin casting and uh and catch bass uh but my real passion is salt water and i'm torn between running near shore offshore to the reefs or out to the gulf stream on a 26 foot sailfish um or fishing uh, tight to the beach for snook and redfish in that boat or i think my favorite really is actually kayaking and wade fishing uh mostly in the banana river Yes, and uh, we are blessed here in our area to have all of these opportunities pretty close by. And in full disclosure, that uh, 26-foot sailfish Greg was talking about, he and I actually co-own and uh, take out and try and splash each other uh, every chance we get uh, when we're out on the water. Okay, so we have a pretty good sense for what it is you fish for on a regular basis these days, but tell us what it was just what the species was that you were after on the most epic day that you can remember? Uh, actually, I was in Texas uh, fishing with a friend of mine over there, and we decided to go out and look for some skinny water redfish. All right, when we get back, Greg is going to tell us about his epic skinny water redfish adventure. Stay tuned. Live bait is often the difference between an epic day and a slow day of fishing. On my last vacation, we were fishing for snook on the beach. The fish were there, but the bait was not. So I ended up driving my boat a mile away to catch bait and then transported them back to the spot on the beach with a five-gallon bucket. However, in the hot Florida sun, that plan did not work out so well. But now I have found a much better portable option for keeping bait alive on the boat and on shore. Visit tell.fish gear to check it out. That's tell.fish gear. Okay, we are back with our guest, Greg Snyder, and continuing on with his epic redfish adventure in skinny water. Greg, where were you fishing on that day? In uh, the Laguna Madre, which is by Port Mansfield in Texas. That's the southernmost part of Texas on the Gulf. Laguna Madre is very much like uh, Mosquito Lagoon, Indian River, Banana River, but it's, it's uh, even shallower, but it's gin clear. So we were out there with fly rods looking for redfish and trout. And is that a tidal area, or how, how much does the tide affect the fish in there? Yeah, it's got a little more tide than we do in central Florida, uh, at least in the, in the inlet areas. It's, it probably has like a two-foot tide, three-foot tide, I think. Uh, but the key is that, that there's this vast flats. And we actually fish in a boat that's unique. It it's, uh, almost, like, almost looks like an airboat with a, a big jack plate, and uh, you actually sit up on a platform on top of the boat, and so you can, uh, you can visually spot uh, tailing redfish and, and schooling trout. 
So you were you were out fishing with a guide this day, correct? I was. We, you know, I like to use guides uh, in areas that I don't know well, just so it's just so much more productive. Uh, they know the water, they know what to fish with, and, and they know the spots. And uh, especially if you're only fishing one day and you got a buddy and uh, had a recommendation from a, for a guide with this uh, from this friend, and uh, it worked out pretty good. So tell me about how you start off in this area. So you, you go to a boat launch, I take it, and, and do you have to go a long way? Are you screaming across the skinny flats or go across deep water? What, what's the area like? Yeah, he launched the boat right there in Laguna Madre. Um, and we ran, I would say, half an hour or so looking for tailing redfish. And the water we're running through is, is at most knee deep. So it is kind of weird flying across the water at 35, 40 miles an hour, super skinny water. Uh, and you see, you know, shorebirds wading just barely up to their knees. So it was, you really def- definitely have to know where you're going because there's certainly some high and dry spots. We went out and I guess for the, we went right out early in the morning when you usually do for, for redfish, uh, looking for tailing redfish. And uh, it was in June, so it, it was not super, super hot in the daytime. Uh, and the bite that he thought would be early in the morning. Uh, but we spent uh, the first two or three hours push-polling and waiting and uh, saw one or two redfish but didn't catch anything at all. Well, I'm taking it that you ultimately did find some redfish on this day, correct? Yeah, we were just uh, cutting across a flat, and then we came to a deep channel, and uh, there was this water pouring through into this channel, so we decided to stop there and fish the edges, and I think we caught our trout or two. And I noticed just uh, maybe 50 yards away, 100 yards away, as I was kind of waiting, and I'd like to, to wait. It's kind of like hunting with a, with a fly rod in your hand, uh, that there were these big potholes and that the water was just r- rushing off of these flats into these potholes. And I figured, if, you know, if I were a lazy redfish, where would I hang out? I'd hang out where the water was coming off this vast flat, and the flat that had emptied into this pothole had to be two, three, four miles long. You could not see any other deep water. Uh, you couldn't see any channels. It was just like massive flat dumping into these potholes right before it got into the deep channels heading out to the Gulf. And so what'd you find there in that uh, epic pothole? <laughs> the funny story is the guy didn't really think that was a good spot. He goes, well, they're, the fish are usually on the edge here right by the deep water. I said, well, yeah. So he stood there with my buddy and they were, they were casting this one area. So I walked up to the to the uh, to the edge of the pothole and through what's called a fly spoon. It's a it's a little spoon about the size of a quarter or maybe a little smaller than that. And it's shiny and it was gold colored, which you know we all know redfish likes gold. So I threw it up over up on the flat and just drug it into uh, this pothole. And first first cast, I caught a redfish. Oh, about 20 21 inches. And were you seeing fish in this hole or just flat water? It was uh, flat water, and although the water was pretty clear, it was rushing so much that it had a little bit of, uh, of turbidity. But uh, the water, I think, I mean, I didn't go wading into it. I'm guessing the water in the potholes was somewhere around four or five foot deep. So it was a pretty, pretty went from, you know, less, less than probably a foot or two max into five or six foot of water. And uh, that's where those redfish were just stacked up thick. And how big around was this pothole you were fishing in? Um, I would say it was, there was actually three potholes. There was one about 20 yards across and the one I was, they were really stacked on was at most 30, 35 yards across. 
Okay, so I'm taking it you have a, a captive audience here in terms of fish. So we've caught one. What what happens after this? Well, between a friend of mine and myself, we caught 77 others, uh, <laughs> all on a fly rod, an eight weight fly rod, all on the on a this spoon fly, just one cast after another. Or every now and then you'd hook a trout, but the vast majority of redfish, and they were all in the 21 to 24 inch uh, slot size. And it, it, if you made two casts and didn't hook a fish, you would just move a little further down the pothole. And we did this for two hours, caught those fish. Unfortunately, we were shooting for 100. Uh, we, we released all of them, but I had a flight to catch back to Orlando. So we, I, we really hated to leave fish, but we really didn't have a choice. So how many fish do you think were in that pothole, if you had to guess? There had to be hundreds, just because... We caught, you know, close to 100 ourselves. Now, they may have all been stacked up. We may have caught the vast majority of them because they were all, you know, exactly where they were facing. They're facing the rushing water off of the flat. So we may have caught most of them, but I, you know, I can't imagine we caught a fish more than once. But, you know, redfish aren't the smartest fish sometimes. Maybe we caught caught one more than than once. But I, I think there had to have been two, three hundred fish in those big potholes. Man, so just to recap, in two hours, you say you caught 78 total fish? 78 redfish, all on a fly rod. Wow. So have you come anywhere close to that in terms of uh, your other redfishing and just in sheer numbers in any other adventure? Uh, once when I went down to Louisiana to uh, Bayou Lafouche, one morning, early morning, I went out, and actually with a fly rod as well. Uh, I caught 50 one morning, and I had the whole bottom of the bateau. And in Louisiana back there in the late 70s, early 80s, your limit was 50. So I actually counted exactly 50 redfish that I'd caught on a fly rod, and uh, I took them back to the office and fed a whole bunch of happy people redfish fillets. I bet. When when did it dawn on you that this was more than just an average day of fishing? When did that light bulb kind of come on and say, hey, I think I'm onto something special here. I think when I caught 10 redfish on a fly on 10 subsequent, in 10 casts in a row, or, you know, that's pretty unusual to catch 10 fish on 10 casts on a fly rod, especially. So I, I knew it was, that was pretty epic. I would have been happy with that, but then it kept going and going and going. It was even better though. The guide really didn't think that was a good spot. So that, that added a little icing to the cake that I kind of discovered the spot in the guide's backyard. I'm thinking he thought it was a pretty good spot after that, huh? <laughs> I bet he went there the next day if the tide was ripping. Now, one thing to, to, uh, to, his, uh, to his credit, the, whether it was the moon or the cycle of the tide, the tide was, was ripping much more than it normally did because he fished this area all the time. And uh, he, he, was not, he was shocked that there were that many redfish stacked up there. I guess the proximity to the deep water, the tide had been up high. They had gone into these potholes. And then it dropped like a rock. It was, it was, he said that the, the water was flowing out as fast as he'd ever seen it. Uh, so I think maybe we just got really, really fortunate with it. Just a ripping tide and uh, a bunch of hungry redfish that really liked this little gold spoon we had. So do you think that was the key to this thing, that you just happened to catch the absolute perfect tide in the uh, perfect place? Or was there something else going on that made this day stand out above all the others? Well, the fact that the guy I was fishing with had only caught like three redfish, the most he'd ever caught in one day. And so he, of the 78, he probably had maybe a third of them or a quarter of them. So that was epic for him. So when, you, when your buddy catches a bunch of fish too, on a fly rod again, the guide was just like 
going crazy. He had never, you know, he had never caught movie 30 in, his, in the boat in, a whole, in his whole life of guiding. So I guess when you break all the records, your buddy has fun, you have fun, you do it in a couple hours, you participated in finding the fish. Uh, we released them all, which is kind of neat too. And uh, then I jumped on a plane smelling very fishy. Uh, and uh, people at Southwest Airlines, I'm sure, enjoyed that immensely. Came back with just a, a fabulous fishing story that was just, you know, one of those epic days. Yeah, no doubt. So if, if you had to summarize it, would you just say this was the right place, right time, just dumb luck? I mean, what, what was it that really made this whole thing happen? I think it was the tide. I think this was the water rushing off the flats into the deep uh, pools early in the summer when the fish were actively feeding. So I think it was the right place at the right time. I, I really don't think that was... Now, we had the right fly. They like, like this little spoon, so we obviously, by dumb luck, matched some kind of hatch that was happening. With some Probably little crabs were coming off the flat. Uh, but I think if we'd had live shrimp or something else, we would have caught... We would have probably caught just as many. It would have been a lot more of a pain. But you know, when you can catch that many fish on artificial, and I think the whole time I, I had... I had one break off. So we caught all that on like two of these little spoon flies. Wow. Well, that's pretty amazing. And I think we have a new record uh, we have to shoot for here. But 78, especially on a fly, that's pretty remarkable. All right, Greg, thanks so much for sharing that with me. You make me want to go grab the kayaks and head out fishing now. (laughs) Thanks, John. Do you know someone who would be a great guest on the Telltale Fisherman? If so... Go to tell.fish slash guest and recommend them for the show. We won't bug them. We'll just give them the chance to share the story of their lifetime and become a fishing legend. Visit tell.fish slash guest. This has been the Telltale Fisherman Podcast. Thanks for sharing another great tale with us. Be sure to check out the show notes page for more info on today's show and the gear we talked about. Keep those lines tight and we'll catch you next time right here on the Telltale Fisherman Podcast.